five, four, three, two, one. Hey guys, I'm Amy Sabjani. And I'm Sarah Brasso. And today we're going on an expedition to, you guessed it, the moon. We'll be exploring what NASA's Artemis program is, how it will be accomplished, and what it will mean for the future of Earth and space travel. So first and foremost, what is the Artemis program? Well, the Artemis program was established in 2017 by the Trump administration to put humans back on the moon within the next decade. Like the Apollo missions, NASA has been put to the board to accomplish this task. However, unlike the Apollo missions, the Artemis program plans to not only send humans back to the moon, but also create a permanent base where astronauts can work and live for long periods of time. To get there, NASA will run multiple unmanned missions to first deliver supplies to prep for human arrival. For these payload deliveries, NASA plans to use private companies rather than its own spacecraft to save money and time so they can focus on the main goal, making it possible for humans to live on the moon. Recently, NASA received its deadline from the government to land humans on the surface of the moon by the end of 2024. Although that is still a while away, preparations have already begun. For example, just last month, the first class of the new generation of astronauts graduated from their training program and are now set to go to the moon whenever NASA is ready to send them. And I heard that six out of the 13 graduates are female? That is correct. With the first Artemis mission, NASA not only plans to send man back to the moon, but they will also send the first woman. The name of this program is symbolic of this as Artemis is the Greek goddess of the moon and the twin sister of Apollo, who the first missions to the moon were named after. What does it take to be an astronaut, though? Well, according to NASA themselves, the initial application requires that applicants have a U.S. citizenship in addition to a, quote, bachelor's degree from an accredited institution in engineering, biological science, physical science, computer science, or mathematics, end quote, which must be followed by at least three years of experience in such a field or such or at least a thousand hours of flight time as pilots in command. After one is accepted to the program, what kind of training do they undergo? For two years, the candidates learn the mechanics of spacewalking, robotics, the ISS systems, and the T-38 jet. In addition to this, they have to learn Russian, as Russia is another leader in the space program and has numerous astronauts. That certainly seems like a lot. For sure. And while we're talking about Russia, who will decide who owns celestial bodies in space, and how will they decide that? To be frank, there's no clear answer. According to Yasmin Ali, the writer of Who Owns Outer Space, the United Nations designed the Outer Space Treaty in 1967 in the middle of the space race. This treaty states that outer space is a province of all mankind. However, some loopholes have been discovered. The treaty fails to specify exactly where outer space is or specifically reference commercial space activities. The small fallacy allows for leading nations to potentially exploit the moon and asteroids for economic purposes. As the conversation for returning back to the moon has come to the forefront in various nations, the renewal slash amendment to this treaty has become a common debate. According to Robert Garcia, the writer of Regulating International Space Mining, an Enormous Industry, this renewed topic has already been acted upon by the United States and Luxembourg. 
In 2015, the U.S. passed a Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act, and Luxembourg followed in 2017. This law basically allows any U.S. citizens to obtain and sell asteroid and space resources. This is a very helpful step for the Artemis program. However, naturally, there are some objections. Yep, the first objection many will have is that increased space travel will worsen the atmosphere of our planet. In 2009, researcher Martin Ross found that rocket launches only contributed to 1% of the ozone depletion, compared to planes that actually deplete 2-5% to of the ozone. However, the co-authors of the study does do contend that if left unregulated, rocket launches by the year 2050 could result in more ozone destruction than was ever realized. This is worrying because most other industries are also increasing their pollution, and to add yet another industry only worsens the problem at hand on our home planet. How exactly does space travel pollute the environment, though? Well, there are two main ways. The first is that when a rocket launches, it expels massive amounts of pollutants into the air at all levels of the atmosphere. These pollutants include soot, which traps heat by absorbing the sunlight. As the stratosphere heats up, it changes the rate at which chemical reactions occur and speeds up the rate at which the ozone depletes. Additionally, the exhaust from the rockets is made up of carbon dioxide, which is a known compound that accelerates climate change. On top of this, as we send more and more satellites and spacecraft into space, we are increasing the likelihood of these objects failing and falling back onto Earth in the form of space debris. Now, many people believe that small pieces of space debris are harmless because they just burn up and disappear, causing no harm. However, this could not be further from the truth. When anything enters Earth's atmosphere from space, it does so at a super high velocity and at extremely high temperatures. This causes the object to burn up, but that doesn't mean it's gone. You have to remember the law of conservation of mass, which states that mass cannot be created or destroyed. This means that even though you cannot see the original object, it still exists, but as microscopic particles, and it will be made of unknown chemicals that can affect anyone, anywhere. Wow, that is a bit concerning. However, even though the environment and space may take a small hit, the economic advances for those involved in space mining are out of this world. Robert Garcia, the writer of the article Regulating International Space Mining, an Enormous Industry, says that this industry could potentially generate 700 quintillion dollars. Wow, that's 20 zeros. Yes, indeed. The attraction to this new industry is great as various materials such as platinum, nickel, gold, and other metals are available in space in large quantities. Furthermore, lunar ice, once nations focus on the moon again, can be broken down into hydrogen and oxygen to be used as rocket fuel. This major discovery could save millions of dollars normally used for the acquisition and transportation of rocket fuel from Earth by having a fuel up station located in space. That's a great discovery. But why would we care about having fuel in space when we're only going to the space station, the moon, and Mars? Though it is not a pressing idea right now, once companies such as NASA begin sending humans to Mars and beyond, this in-space fueling station could potentially be the deal-breaker for just how far these expeditions can reach. 
As Yamin Ali, the writer of the article, Who Owns Outer Space, discusses, raw materials from space could even become more cost-effective than materials on Earth, despite the transportation distance. Along with cost, as we all know, Earth's natural resources are running low. If we continue as we have been, mining, drilling, and uh, doing deforestation, the Earth will become a desolate place that no animal can or will want to live on. But what if we reach the same problems of overmining on the moon as we currently do on Earth? That is a current important question NASA and other businesses need to ask before setting the new precedence of using the moon instead. Space is still greatly unexplored by humans and the future adverse effects of our current expeditions are still greatly unknown. Various nations have multiple satellites in space, whether to track weather or facilitate technology, that the stakes of a future world war have become more pressing. Communication is now almost all on technology, so if a country were to lose its satellites that facilitate this communication, then a nation's system of control and communication would be completely down. This great weakness could allow for other nations to attack the nation unanswered, simply due to the fact that the country is divided within itself with no idea what is happening, maybe even just 50 miles over. Man, outer space could become a new battlefield for countries. Simply put though, the U.S. itself has the resources needed to protect its satellites and to produce new ones, so no pressing worry is necessary. So, despite the slight flaws, space is still at the forefront of many companies. Currently, to transport a satellite less than 50,000 pounds, SpaceX is asking for $62 million, Atlas V is asking for a slightly higher price of $73 million, and the Air Force is asking for an added $20 million to that amount. However, for smaller satellites, less than 50,000 pounds, NASA has a nanosatellites program that essentially allows universities and research groups to transport their satellite on a NASA rocket for free. And for others, the price is only $5 million. This price range is more reasonable for the smaller groups. That's a nice deal, but what about people traveling to space? Well, Jason Davis, the writer of the article, How Much Does Space Travel Cost?, says that currently NASA pays Russia $75 million per seat for, uh, on their Soyuz shuttle to go to the International Space Station. NASA's hand was forced to do this due to the reduction of government funding during the Obama administration. However, in recent years, U.S. companies such as SpaceX and Boeing have been developing their own ships through partnership with NASA and propose a price of about $58 million per seat on their ships. Now for citizens, the pricing is different. Annie Shalvey, the writer of the article Tourism Trend, The Future of Space Travel, outlines what the future of space travel means for citizens. The pricing will be high at first, uh, $200,000 to $10 million until it drops lower once companies can begin producing more regularly. Also, though it goes into space, the route will only reach right past the Kármán line, which is about 62 miles up, and it will feel just like a normal airplane flight across the country. The company SpaceX hasn't finished designing the added features of supersonic, g-force, or the feeling of weightlessness normally attributed to space.
because it is still trying, just trying to create a craft that will be able to take citizens to space in the first place. Furthermore, Jeff Faust, in A Short Story of Lunar Space Tourism, says that SpaceX is focused on just getting to the moon first with either Falcon Heavy or Dragon 2, but unforeseen delays have slowed the path towards citizen tourism, so Artemis space travel might not be as exciting as it seems, but in even just 20 years, citizens could be touring space for a reasonable price. That's crazy to think about. That means that even we could be going to space for a quite literally out of this. We definitely could. And even though regular citizens might not be living in space as of right now, astronauts do currently live on the International Space Station, or the ISS. I know advancements in space travel and the new space mining industry seem to have slowed down in the past years, but much of the new discoveries and advancements are actually still being done, just not exactly how you would think. Many new technologies are being created or tested on the ISS by those astronauts. We invited my dad, Hubert Brasso, to tell us a little bit about how the research being performed on the space station can help advance the Artemis space program. Well, Sarah, we're using the space station as a testing bed, proving ground for a lot of the technology that we intend on using for uh, the moon and Mars. Um, right now, we have uh, an experiment called thermal mean scrubber, which is being used to remove carbon dioxide out of the air. Um, it also converts the the carbon dioxide and into oxygen and, and puts that back into the air for the crew members to breathe. So it kind of re uh, recycles the uh, oxygen system um, uh, for the crew members. Um, what we're finding is keeping a low CO2 uh, uh, par uh, partial pressure in the uh, station is very vital for, for the way a crew members uh, function. We want to keep uh, the PPCO2 below uh, three millimeters of mercury, and the lower the better. Right now on station, we have it around, we have it under two millimeters of mercury uh, for the crew members, and it, it really helps their, their overall uh, well-being. Other things we're working on is some uh, veggie, veggie ponds, and uh, you know, we know that the crew members uh, can't... Um, uh, they need some fresh fruit every once in a while, and so so uh, we're doing veggie ponds, and it shows how how different things grow in um, in in space. And we're doing some veggie plants. We 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 make uh, lettuce and uh, some greens, and the crew is learning how to grow these, and they can harvest them and actually eat, have a salad uh, while they're on space station. Um, Another thing we're working on is, is something called a refabricator. Um, you know, you can't really take everything with you when you go on a long trip like this. And so uh, we have, uh, in the last several years, we've been working on 3D printer technology um, so that uh, if you need a tool, you can't bring all the tools with you. Maybe you print a new tool for the for the need that you that you have and so you use 3d printer technology to to print some of the things you actually actually need once you get there and um, refabricator is one where you can actually recycle 
the 3D printed material. So um, you don't necessarily, uh, won't necessarily run out of the material. You can uh, uh, grab an old print and, uh, and reuse it. And so this way, uh, the crew members would be more self-sufficient self when they're on the moon and on Mars. Hmm. Wow, that's a very useful discovery. Uh, also, how is the International Space Station helping with designing habitats for the moon and Mars? Well, the, the space station is mainly made out of cylinders that have been launched on multiple shuttle flights and coupled together uh, with hatchways so that the crews can go and travel throughout the space station. Um, uh, however, you when you go to the Mars, when you go to the moon surface, um, you won't be able to bring all these large um, modules with you. It's going to take a lot of, um, takes a lot to launch all that, multiple flights and it ends up being very expensive. So what we're, one of the things we're looking at is uh, we have uh, one module on space station called the BEAM. It's the Bigelow Expandable Activity Module. Uh, it launched uh, uh, one-tenth of its size and then was inflated once it got on station. So, so the idea is that um, uh, that would uh, inflate and give you a living volume uh, that you can work in. Um, a lot of the the detractors felt that with an one of the things that uh, the the station is uh, is is uh, concerned about is MMOD strikes or micrometeoroid debris traveling at high speeds that could um, could puncture or, or rupture the the vessels that the crew members are living in. Um, the space is a very harsh environment. Well, the Bigelow module has shown that um, that this uh, inflatable technology is is very resistant to that and uh, is actually um, a, a very viable method for a habitat for for future space. When you go onto the so so when the crew members go and live and and work on um, the moon or Mars, perhaps. Most likely, it will be an inflatable module that they'll uh, they'll live in. We are also working on airlocks that allow you to go from a pressurized module out to space, um, and also uh, spacesuits that the crew members will use uh, not only for taking a uh, spacewalk and repairing the outside of their their, their space station, but also to walk on the moon and Mars. Another thing, so, so when they go to, the, uh, go to the moon, we'll have a place, another small station called Gateway, and it will be very close to um, the moon. It'll be, it'll be in, a, in a, uh, a stationary uh, location, and it will be the, 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 the station that um, people going to the, to the moon um, will, will go from, from the Earth to the gateway first. So you travel from, from the ground, from, from the United States to, to the gateway, 
and uh, and then you would take a a smaller vessel from the gateway down to the surface of the moon. Um, you wouldn't spend all your time on the moon. You would go back to the uh, to the gateway as your as your station. Um, one of the things the Europeans are working on is something called the analog, and so that's, uh, that's uh, a crew member in a in the station like a gateway but he's driving a rover that's on the surface of the moon or a distant planet he could do that either one and so so we've done one where um on the space station one of the crew members actually drove a rover that was in amsterdam and he was able to pick up rocks and and do different scientific experiments that you would normally expect to do on a planet and that was a very successful experiment. Um, as all of these advancements are being made, as our progression to, into space becomes even farther, um, what does that mean for astronaut health? Well, astronaut health is, is uh, very critical to the mission. Um, you can't do anything if, you're, if your crew members are sick or... or, or um, uh, so, so there's different things that we do on station to uh, to help uh, work with that. One of the things is exercise. Um, what we found is is when you're in zero gravity for a long period of time, you uh, continue to lose bone mass, uh, and uh, bone mass because your 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 muscle your your bones really don't have uh, the stresses that they do here on Earth, um, and uh, and so right now you know just walking walking around on Earth, your your bones are in constant compression because you're you're fighting the Earth's gravity, and uh, and uh, those bones are used to support you. Well, in zero gravity, you don't your bones don't have to work as hard. You know the only thing they're feeling is the resistance of the muscles. So we have some devices called ARED, which is an advanced resistive exercise device that the crew members use for lifting weights. You can't really lift weights in zero gravity. I mean, it'd be very simple. You could do it one-handed. Um, but uh, in zero gravity, what we use is resistive exercises. So you're pushing against uh, your, uh, like bungee cords, that kind of thing, to give you a resistance and uh, we can calibrate those to the equivalent of lifting weights on the ground. So a crew member can, can they can lift 200 pounds if they want to just using this, uh, this exercise device. And what we're finding is that, um, that crew members that do this lifting and running on a treadmill, we have a treadmill that we use that hold, we have bungees that hold the crew member on the treadmill and so keep them on so they don't just run off. But, uh, but at the same time, you know, they exercise by running on the treadmill. There's a stationary bike and we use this ARED uh, resistive exercise to lift weights. And all, what we're finding is all those are keeping the crew members in top-notch shape uh, so that they can uh, come back to earth and be able to uh, walk and thrive and function. You know, when you go on a mission to 
to Mars, it'll take you like nine months with the current um, with the current uh, engines that we have. It would take you nine months just to get to Mars. You can't let your body deteriorate that whole way and then expect to get in the gravity of Mars and walk around. It'd be very painful. Okay, so you need to have uh, you need to be able to exercise like this and keep your body in shape for that entire journey. Uh, right now, the crew members, they exercise for uh, roughly two hours a day um, between the three different exercise uh, machines, to, uh, the treadmill, and, and usually the, the treadmill and A-Red, they do different things, but they dedicate two hours, and it's not two continuous hours, but we dedicate two hours of their day to uh, go exercise every day. Um, there's other things that we're also doing um, for, uh, for medical uh, technology. One of the things is called AMOS, and that's a, uh, some software demonstration where we're trying to train an untrained user on some complicated medical procedures without the assistance from Earth. Uh, when you go to Mars, you, you may not have a doctor on your team, and uh, someone could get uh, could could uh, have have a problem that they they need some uh, some medical assistance. So for this study, we're using the Amos software to do some to to teach the crew members how to do some ultrasound imaging of the bladder and kidneys, and then so with the idea that. How, how does the software work and, and is it enough to train the crew member properly to do this? And then uh, this would be where you take the ultrasound, you send it back to Earth, a doctor can look at it and then can, um, can prescribe uh, uh, something or, 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 uh, or, uh, or identify what the, what, the, what the problem is and then identify a treatment for the crew member. So all those kind of things help, and and uh, and so these are all things that uh, we are using the space station for to help uh, make life better for the crew members as we go to Mars and into the moon. Thank you. Wow, I've known that the ISS has been an incredibly valuable institute for learning more about space, but I never knew that it was so important for even learning about the moon. Yeah, me either, but what they've been doing definitely makes a lot of sense after learning more about what the Artemis program will require of astronauts. Yeah, in the same way the ISS has been a stepping stone to the development of a base on the moon, the Artemis program will be the next leg before we can continue our journey to our final destinations, Mars and beyond. NASA themselves have said that one of the main goals of Artemis is to test out the technologies that astronauts will use on Mars. When astronauts are on Mars, they will have to deal with all the situations by themselves. And because of how far away Earth is, they're not going to be able to get any immediate help. To reduce any casualties, it is safer to test them close to home where problems can be fixed much faster. Additionally, astronauts going to Mars are most likely going to have to live there forever since currently there is no good way to transport enough fuel to Mars for a return trip to Earth. So they should have things to be at least comfortable and entertaining. I can't imagine living on another planet for the rest of my life. Neither can I. I'm pretty introverted and like being alone more often than not. 
and even I can't bear the thought of living far away from home with maybe like 10 other people. Hopefully Artemis will provide lots of insight, though, that can make mass colonization of Mars possible. Yeah, that would be groundbreaking. Well, that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed learning about Artemis and all its implications as much as we did, and can't wait to see you guys another time. Once again, this is Amy Zavjani and Sarah Brasso, and we hope you have a safe trip back home.